0: Chapter Twenty One of the Black Motor Car. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. The Black Motor Car by Harris Burland. Chapter Twenty One Hue and Cry. There was little doubt that three of the murderers had escaped in the motor-car and that the fourth was dead. A body, charred and consumed beyond all recognition, had been found by the police in the black ruins of the stables. There was no evidence to show whether it was the body of Jordison or that of one of his three servants. No one knew of Susanson's death, and it was commonly supposed that three people had escaped. Home, indeed, spoke of only having seen one of Jordison's servants, but it was well known that there had been four men in the house, and it was not extraordinary that a person confined to the four square walls of a loose box should only have come in contact with two of them. The red house had tumbled down like a house of cards. Scarcely one brick was left standing on another. It resembled a vast rubbish heap or a building that had gone through the hands of the housebreakers it was no longer the semblance of a house but a mere pile of brick timber and plaster the police had no hope of finding any bodies in the ruins for they knew that the house had not been inhabited for some time past and that Jordison and his servants had made their home in the stables and outhouses but they removed every brick till the surface was level with the garden they did this as a matter of form, and did not pursue their investigations into the cellars, which were entirely choked up with rubbish. They found no trace of anything, not even of a single piece of furniture. They came to the conclusion that it had all been removed to the stables, and that it had perished in the fire. There was an element of weakness in this theory, for it would have been hard to get a house full of furniture into the stables. But the theory had to serve in default of a better one both lady heatherstone and arthur home were carefully questioned and cross-examined the former withheld all information as to Jordison's real name and past history the latter gave his evidence to the best of his ability but slurred over the matter of arthur steerius as an unimportant detail and some hallucination of Jordison's brain other minor witnesses contributed to the general stock of knowledge and lord heatherstone stated what he had seen from the bedroom window the sum total of it all was that william georderson and his servants were responsible for the murders of lord overcliffe and william outon and that three of them had escaped from the district on a very powerful motor-car the latter had been seen on the old roman causeway by two oyster fishermen Whose boat was lying up one of the creeks, and then all trace of it had vanished as completely as though it had been swallowed up in the ooze of the marshes. The Essex papers, in commenting on the case, said that the only satisfactory feature of the whole affair was the fact that three such determined ruffians had escaped from the neighbourhood, and that the fourth was dead. One journal, progressive and ultra-radical, Printed some severe remarks about the stupidity of the police aiming thereby at the government and even hinted that the evidence of arthur Home and lady heatherstone was not entirely satisfactory the whole affair caused the greatest sensation throughout england and scotland lord heatherstone added another five thousand pounds to the promised reward and the enormous sum of ten thousand pounds awaited the fortunate man who could discover the whereabouts of the three murderers the hunt which had formerly been confined to a small and little-known district on the east coast now became general throughout the length and breadth of the land three men on a motor-car which report had exaggerated into a monster as big as a railway locomotive might be found anywhere between john groats and land's end such a car as a halfpenny evening paper said, annihilated space and threw all ordinary detective methods into confusion. It might one day be in Yorkshire, and the next in Devon, and the next in Inverness. It might be seen anywhere and by any inhabitant in Great Britain. The Irish alone slept safely in their beds at night. They were not grateful, and construed this pleasing circumstance into a grievance the reward was not likely to come their way where the money was most wanted the irish papers pooh-poohed the whole affair it was a bad time for the drivers of big cars especially those who travelled by night police traps abounded on every road and enthusiastic amateurs drove madly in pursuit of brother motorists only to find that they were themselves the objects of pursuit accidents occurred with alarming frequency, half a dozen lives were lost, and there were at least three-score actions for damages. The whole thing would have been laughable, if so serious a fact had not been at the root of it. Of course, the missing car was seen by a thousand correspondents to the daily papers, and like the sea-serpent, it varied so greatly in size and appearance that no credence whatever could be attached to the different narratives it became a will-o'-the-wisp, a phantom eluding all pursuit and all attempts at capture, to was sometimes seen in two places some hundred miles apart at the same hour. In time, the excitement became the ridicule of all sober-minded men, and it died out almost as rapidly as it had arisen. In two months' time, only the police and a few determined seekers after the reward took any further interest in the search, and these worked silently and unostentatiously, following out their own methods and theories, without any desire for publicity in the newspapers. They kept their attention fixed, not on powerful cars that travelled by night, but on the list of burglaries that occurred throughout the United Kingdom. It was possible for the thieves to get rid of their car but it was more than likely that they would continue to steal. The result was disappointing. Several burglaries occurred in the two months, but in every case the thieves had been captured, and none of them corresponded to the description of Jordison or any of his three servants. It almost seemed as if they had broken up their car and left the country. Arthur Home took no part in the general search. It was three weeks before he could leave heatherstone hall he received every attention at the hands of Lord heatherstone and his wife but he was not allowed to see or speak to Lady Agnes he did not mention her name and her father made no reference to what had passed between them home was content to catch an occasional glimpse of her from the window she never looked up at him nor showed any desire to see him this indifference might have been a source of annoyance to a sick man whose nerves had been considerably shaken. But Holmes was strong-minded and sensible. He was sure of her love, and he knew that she acted from motives that could not be ascribed to indifference. The restraint on his part, and the quiet indifference of Lady Agnes, did not escape the notice of the shrewd Lord Heatherstone, and the young man rose considerably in his estimation. He had already formed a high opinion of Holmes's abilities, and it was no unusual thing for him to spend a couple of hours in the invalid's bedroom and talk seriously to him of political matters. The noble earl had every hope of winning over this promising recruit to the Conservative cause. Holmes's views on certain matters were fixed and unalterable. But he cared little for party shibboleths, he had the cause of the poor at heart, and he had assisted the liberal candidate, because he thought that by so doing he would further the interests of the poor fishermen in the district. He would have as readily worked for a conservative candidate, if the latter had held out the same bait. Lord Heatherstone, ex-diplomat that he was, was not slow to grasp the situation, he pointed out that in the next general election there would be a reshuffling of the cards. He, the earl, was a free trader and might be separated from his colleagues. Home was also a free trader. This would be a bond between them and would bring them into the same political party when the whole election was fought out on the question of protection. Before Home left Heatherstone Hall, they had come to a closer understanding and home had definitely promised his support against any political doctrine that threatened the existence of free trade the young man it is only fair to say was not entirely disinterested in thus promising his allegiance to the earl of heatherstone during his three weeks of sickness he had thought much of his own career and the unpleasant conviction had come to him that he was wasting much precious time he had not been an idle man since he had been in essex he had the past to blot out and that meant work he did not want any spare time to think over his life as a sailor he wished also in some measure to atone for many wasted hours he had a small income and was not obliged to work for his bare sustenance so he had thought that he could not do better than fling himself heart and soul into the righting of social wrongs, into the alleviation of distress among the poor, into schemes which would raise the working man socially and morally from his slough of despondency. The seafaring folk had always been near his heart, and he had narrowed down his general theories to this particular class. He had gone among them as one of themselves and worked incessantly in their behalf. His philanthropy had taken the form of labour, and not of gifts, which he could not afford. He had raised a considerable sum of money from wealthy people, and built the men a good clubhouse where they could get both billiards and beer. He had set to work to study the oyster fisheries, and had suggested several improvements in the antiquated methods that had been handed down from father to son for more than a century and in every sense of the word he had proved himself a true friend to these rough but sterling men. He had grasped from the first the true spirit of the sea, and after he had fought and won two battles on their behalf, one against the interference of the fishmonger's company and one against the owners of the foreshore, his name became a word to conjure with. Every man on the coast and up the creeks had a good word to say for him, and if occasion had offered, would have backed up his words with deeds. Yet, in spite of the good work he had done, Arthur Home felt that he was not making the best use of his life. He had been working within narrow limits, and during the three weeks of his illness he had seen how wide the world was and how much it offered to an earnest man. Hitherto his work in the creeks and marshes had left no time to think of a wider sphere of action. But he had realised at last that he had ambition, and that if he could only obtain an opening, he would thrust all his heart and soul into it, and force a way to success. Such an opening might well be made by the great Earl of Heatherstone. The sphere of politics offers more to an ambitious man than any other in the whole world and lord heatherstone was still a power in the political world home saw that under the patronage of this somewhat pompous but intellectual aristocrat he might rise to great heights and do much good it is no shame to him that he resolved to take the opportunity when it offered itself lord heatherstone was as good as his word and before home had left the house he had given him a start in life the oyster fisheries of the district were at that time under a cloud. Several cases of typhoid had been traced to the beds which lay up one of the Essex creeks, and the public began to institute a silent but indiscriminate boycott of the oysters of the whole county. An industry which supported many hundreds of hard-working and capable men was threatened almost with extinction. Their outcry would never have reached the ears of Parliament, which had many matters of more importance to discuss, if it had not been for the voice of Lord Harry Quee. He moved for a commission to inquire into the cause of typhoid in the creek in question, and to suggest some means of purifying the water and restoring public confidence in the Essex oysters. After some haggling, it was resolved that a committee be appointed, it was composed of two doctors two members of parliament two sanitary inspectors two bacteriologists and arthur home at the suggestion of lord heatherstone the latter was nominated chairman his practical knowledge of the oyster fisheries and his influence with the men employed in the industry outweighed his comparative youth and obscurity moreover it was thought advisable FOR A LAY MIND TO DIRECT AND CONTROL THE VARIOUS PROFESSIONAL ELEMENTS OF THE COMMISSION. WITH THE PROSPECT OF THIS PROMISING ENTRY INTO PUBLIC LIFE, HOME RESOLVED TO START ON A THREE WEEKS' CRUISE ON THE ROVER, HOPING THAT THE AIR OF THE SEA WOULD RESTORE HIM TO PERFECT HEALTH AND VIGOUR. LORD HEATHERSTONE SAID GOOD-BYE TO HIM WITH GENUINE REGRET, AND PROMISED HIM THE ENTIRE HEATHERSTONE SUPPORT, if he would stand for the western division of gloucestershire at the next general election lord heatherstone owned large estates in this county and in his own person represented the balance of political power the rover with two hands on board for home was not yet sure of his strength was anchored off the park wall it was a bright frosty morning and as they glided down the narrow creek holmes's thoughts reverted to the night when he had run as it were into the very jaws of hell in an hour's time they passed the place where the red house had once stood the little hill was almost bare the police had levelled everything to the ground and scattered the debris over the marshes arthur home wondered what had become of the occupants the hue and cry was still loud over the length and breadth of england but the excitement of the chase had long left the place where the quarry had first been started the missing motor had been seen everywhere save in the district where gorderson had first driven it essex had contributed nothing but the two murders to the general uproar it was the source the fountainhead but the stream had flowed far from it and into many channels a bare hill naked and ugly in the sunlight was all that William Jordison had left behind him. End of chapter twenty one.